Welcome back to the Anthrophiles. In this episode, we'll be talking about a man named Elmer McCurdy who lived from 1880 to 1911. Much of his life was difficult but mundane. However, during the last year of his life, McCurdy lived as a Wild West outlaw known for several botched bank and train robberies. A bounty was then placed on him and he was confronted by three sheriffs in an Oklahoma hayshed. After an hour-long gunfight, McCurdy was dead. So nothing about this guy seems terribly remarkable, right? None of his robberies were successful, he didn't die in an outlandish way, and nothing in his life really stands out. Well, in McCurdy's case, it's what happened to his body after his death that has made him so famous. Ooh. Yeah. You're really harsh on him in the first half. (laughs) He's unremarkable and boring. I mean... (laughs) He was an outlaw. (laughs) He was. Sort of. That's exciting. Right. Okay. (laughs) I'm ready. Okay, so I'm Emily. I'm Sarah. I'm Katrina. And this is The Anthrophiles. So I chose this story because I remember reading a short paragraph about it in one of my anthropology textbooks called The Forensic Anthropology Training Manual, written by Karen Rainey Burns. Can I sell you out for a second? Yeah. Professor Reedy, I know you're listening to this. (laughs) Don't you dare. (laughs) Emily never actually got the textbook, and she just used mine for the whole semester. Textbooks are expensive. It was a (laughs) money-saving technique. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Sarah. Thought we were friends. Sorry. Anyway, (laughs) so if I remember correctly, the story was highlighted in the book because of the forensic science that was at work to identify and determine the cause of death of this now mummified body. Um, I had never read anything about this person before, um, and his story seemed really interesting and shocking, and I instantly wanted to know more about him, so I figured that this would make a morbid but interesting topic for our podcast. One thing I want to say before we start, though, is that although this story might trigger like a morbid curiosity, I think that it's really important to emphasize that Elmer McCurdy was a real person with thoughts, hopes, and feelings, and not just a character in a tale. This is also a great episode to contemplate how and why the bodies of some people are treated unethically and inhumanely in death while others are not. So, before we get started, have you guys ever heard of Elmer McCurdy before? I feel like I've definitely heard his name thrown around before, but I don't know, like, the details of his story. Yes, I have. Okay. Same. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get into it. In December of 1976, the cast and crew of The Six Million Dollar Man were in Long Beach, California, filming a scene in the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse for its fourth season. Have you guys ever seen that show? No. No, I've, I've heard of it. Is that the guy with, like, the superhuman abilities? Yeah, he has, I, like, all the technology on him and I've stuff. never seen it, but I read a little blurb about it because I didn't know what it was. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, this bionic man yeah. from outer space. Well, there was the bionic woman, too. Oh. Yeah. From old TV shows. Okay, wow. film Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, in between filming... The prop department would reset the scene, which included positioning an old and brittle wax figure, which was spray-painted with glow-in-the-dark orange paint and adorned with a noose around its neck. The figure was normally relegated to the back corner of the funhouse, so as the set director was fidgeting with it, there was a loud snap, and the arm became separated from the body. Um, The crew member quickly realized that this figure was not made of wax, and was in fact a real mummified human being when bone and surrounding muscle tissue became exposed. So as you can imagine, production came to a screeching halt. That's wild. They spray painted him? Yeah. Okay, so I I knew that he was like 
a mummified person who ended up in like a fun house when he wasn't supposed to be. I didn't realize he was like spray painted and oh, there was like the new that's horrible. Oh my goodness. Yes. So by the time it was in the fun house, it nobody knew that mm-hmm. he was in fact a real human being. Like they thought that he was a wax figure, mm-hmm. so Yeah. Uh one thing that surprised me was how long it took for someone to realize that it was an actual human being and not a wax figure. But how do you all think you would have reacted if you were the one who made this discovery? Tears. I would have cried, probably. I would have thrown up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that would not be a fun discovery no. to make. Very scary. Yeah. Yeah. Like, could you imagine if you were, it was like a Halloween decoration or something, and like you went to like adjust it, and then like the whole arm came off, and it was a real arm? No. I think I would have an internal panic attack. Yeah. Yep. yep. So after it was discovered that the figure was actually the remains of a human, the police and the fire department were called. Um, the police then called the paramedics for what they described as, and this is a quote, a severe case of dehydration. <laughs> in the article, A Sideshow Corpse Hidden in a Fun House, put out by Ripley's, it actually said that when the paramedics arrived, they burst out into laughter at just how severe the case of dehydration was. So although this miscommunication might seem a little comical, um, I think it's important to bring up just how vital ethics are, especially when dealing with a case like this. It is often seen that the remains of the most vulnerable, in this case a criminal, are often treated the most unethically. Mm -hmm. So what are some of your thoughts on this in relation to ethics and why, in your opinion, are ethics so important? Why are ethics important? (laughs) Yes. It's a loaded question. Um, well, I mean, obviously, it's horrible that this living human being's body ended up being used as kind of like a sideshow um, type of attraction. And then I think, like you said, it's the most vulnerable people in our society who end up getting put in these positions, whether it's, you know, a criminal or um, ob- we talked about before a lot. <laughs> on the show about um, like indigenous people and their bodies end up getting displayed a lot in museums and stuff like that. And it's, it's sad to think about and it's upsetting. Yeah, I mean, like, could you imagine if like anyone else being in this position, anyone else's body? Like, it makes sense that it was someone who did have a contentious past that mm-hmm. he ended up there. It, get wor- it gets worse as oh, we no. go along. <laughs> Great. Um, <laughs> So after the body arrived at the Los Angeles County Coroner's Office, Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Joseph Choi confirmed through autopsy that the body was um, actually mummified human remains. He also determined that the cause of death was a 32 caliber gunshot to the chest that entered through the right side and traveled diagonally before being lodged in the pelvic muscle. Tests conducted on the remains also found high levels of arsenic, which was used as a preservative. By the time of discovery, his remains had shrunk to about 5 feet 3 inches tall and weighed only 50 pounds. Um, Also, after many years of wear and tear, the body had lost multiple fingers, toes, and both ears. Also, at this point, his body, in the condition that it was, may not have looked real. So at some point, the people handling him, like the owners of the funhouse, had no idea that they were real human remains, and most likely didn't intend for there to be any disrespect. Mm -hmm. So the next step in this case was to identify who the body belonged to. Um, Identification of the remains became a joint effort of 
Fred Olds, the director of the Oklahoma Territorial Museum, Dr. Thomas Noguchi, an LA uh, County coroner, and Dr. Clyde Snow, a forensic anthropologist. Um, I think it's good to note here how these people are all from different fields and they came together in order to figure this case out. Um, why do you think that this approach works better than like isolating cases to only one field? Hmm. That's a good question. Well, I guess if you have like multiple people from different fields working on it, you can get obviously varying points of input input and like you know like one person's perspective from a certain field is going to be different than another person's perspective from another field and then like you know two heads is better than one kind of thing yeah I feel like they all come from different points of view and um, I learned a little bit about Clyde Snow in my final project that I did for our forensic anthropology class um, and that's a very unique perspective um, you know especially um, in what I wrote about, like forensic anthropologists um, doing humanitarian work in other countries um, and treading very lightly. So I think that brings a kind of unique perspective. And then obviously like coroners and things like that um, are working with more freshly um, past human <laughs> remains and things like that. So yeah, it comes together nicely, I feel like. So. Um, upon closer examination, it was discovered that there were actually things stuffed in the mouth of the remains. Um, these things they found included tickets to the Museum of Crime and a penny that was dated from 1924. This discovery helped make the connection that this uh, body was actually the famous gunslinger Elmer McCurdy. However, to understand how McCurdy's body could have ended up at a fun house in Long Beach, California, we have to go back to the late 1800s and learn more about his life and what happened after his death. So McCurdy was born on January 1st, 1880 and was considered to be an illegitimate child. Um, after a rough early life, and after all his family had either passed or become estranged, um, the poor state of the economy motivated him to look westward. Like many others, he moved west to create his own destiny. However, it didn't work out so well for him. Um, after developing chronic alcoholism, he had a difficult time holding down a job um, because he would often make mistakes and be let go. In 1907, McCurdy joined the U.S. Army, where he stayed for a few years before being discharged in 1910. And while in the Army, he gained a basic understanding of explosives. Um, after being discharged from the Army, McCurdy used his limited understanding of explosives to join a gang of bank and train robbing bandits. However, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, none of McCurdy's robberies were successful. So he was kind of like Bonnie and Clyde, but like the not successful version of them. If he didn't have a Bonnie, <laughs> he's <laughs> he just Clyde. <laughs> yes. So... The group's first robbery attempt involved the Iron Mountain, Missouri Pacific train that held a safe containing $4,000. Um, when planning this robbery, however, McCurdy misjudged how like much explosives it would take to gain access to the safe. Um, so instead of just opening the safe, it was completely blown up and all of the money inside was destroyed. That's kind of sad. It is. Like for him. Then the group's first bank robbery was also botched. This time, however, instead of using too large of an explosion, too little was used and the group was not successful in blowing the door of the safe off. Although there are other examples of his botched robberies, the last one occurred on October 4th, 1911. 
He and the group of bandits planned to rob a Katy train that was transporting $400,000 in cash. Unfortunately for the group, they unknowingly robbed the wrong train and began to frantically look for the money. All they found, however, was $46, a watch, and a couple of bottles of whiskey. After realizing that they were on the wrong train, the group of bandits bailed, leaving McCurdy behind. Oh, I know. Poor guy. Not, that's not good for him. He first has, like, this, like, kind of, like, Goldilocks situation <laughs> where it's, like, too much explosives and then too little explosives and he couldn't find one that, that was just right and then his friends abandoned him yeah that limited knowledge of explosives was pretty limited <laughs> I'd say it was unfortunately for him it was after this robbery gone wrong the rest of the group abandoned him leaving him alone with a $2,000 bounty on his head and a bottle of whiskey. So this brings us back to the beginning of our story where McCurdy is tracked down by a couple of sheriffs in a hay shed and killed. So after this ordeal at the hay shed, Elmer McCurdy was dead. But his story does not end there, unfortunately. Um, McCurdy's body was then taken to a funeral home in Oklahoma run by Joseph L. Johnson, where after he sat unclaimed by family, he was embalmed using a very strong arsenic-laced preservative that would allow his body to last an extremely long time in good good condition. Um, It was also common practice that coroners would put unclaimed bodies on display, so the coroner, Joseph L. Johnson, propped him up in a coffin and placed him in the funeral parlor. For five years, McCurdy was displayed in the funeral parlor with a gun at his side and a sign that labeled him as um, the bandit who wouldn't give up. This is obviously extremely disrespectful and would never fly today, but the disrespect did not stop there. Johnson also charged visitors five cents to view McCurdy up close. To make matters worse, in order to pay the fee, visitors would deposit their five cents into McCurdy's mouth. Another account from the time also details how the coroner's grandchildren fitted him in roller skates and rolled him around the house. Oh my god. Wait, stop a sec. (laughs) That's so horrible. Yeah. I didn't know any of that. Did, um, did coroners, like, did they, did they display the bodies, like, to try and be, like, look at my fine work? That's what I was going to say, too. You know, I was kind of having a little bit trouble finding why (laughs) they did that. Yeah. Yeah. Because it seems like, like, nobody would ever do that. No. So, like, they would obviously keep the bodies until, you know, somebody claimed them like family so they could give them a proper burial mm-hmm. um but you know after he wasn't claimed mm-hmm. like the coroner decided yeah to and then now he's profiting yeah off the body wait so the strong um arsenic solution that they used to preserve him was that common practice at the time or they did that for certain people and not others um i'm not totally sure but i don't think it was um i don't think they would have used that for everyone right um i'm assuming he probably had a a plan in mind like he wanted to like display it so he like used the arsenic so he could do it for longer that's so horrible and then like the body just kind of turns into an object at that point and then i guess you can see if it's on display for that long for such a long time you could see how it eventually does end up in like a fun house at some point Mm -hmm. the fact that the children were okay with touching a dead body is a little bit concerning yeah I don't know but yeah. about today if that would oh be boy. A <laughs> I don't think so. No. So I actually had the question written down, like how do you both feel about this practice? But we already talked about that. <laughs> um, but also, how does this practice really differ from displaying bodies in places like museums? Today it seems that there is it is more accepted that things like mummies are displayed, but 
um, not unwrapped or fully visible bodies like McCurdy's. Mm -hmm. So why do you think that is? I feel like if you're talking specifically about like wrapped up mummies, there's a level of like disconnect that you can have with them, which makes people feel more comfortable because you don't actually see the body. You just see it kind of wrapped up. But but it's still a human body and it it wasn't meant to be there in the museum. It was meant to be in its resting place. And then now it's being displayed for a profit to everybody, which is a little icky. I think... um there's a difference when, you know, someone like McCurdy is, you know, somewhat of a, of a random person. He doesn't really have any, like, um, like I guess, American historical, like, background, whereas, like, these um, other bodies have this, like, deep history that people are so interested in learning about, which is fine. But I think there's obviously other ways to go about it than displaying human remains. But I think, like Sarah said, there's a huge disconnect. When people want to learn, um, they'll do anything. And that's, you know, why they were dug up in the first place. So, Yeah, and I think, like, specifically things like, you know, like, mummified remains. I think it's easy to say, like, oh, like, the mummy section. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. it's, like, you're kind of dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Them. Or even, like, I feel like I've definitely been to museums that have, like, shrunken heads and stuff like that, too. And But then, like, when you think about it, you're like, that's that was somebody's head. That was, like, somebody's body. Like, that was a real person with feelings and emotions, and now they're just, yeah. like, and being... Yeah, like, you know, they had a name, but yeah. now they're just the mm-hmm. shrunken head. Yeah. Exactly. I think also, like, we treat different bodies differently. Mm-hmm. Like, was McCurdy white? Yes. Right. So, you know, when we think about mummies and we think about... Um, indigenous people, we treat, you know, black and brown bodies a lot differently than we do white bodies, mm-hmm. especially in the museum field. So It's kind of interesting, too, because I guess if you're thinking about, like, when archaeology and anthropology became popular, um, like, not popular, but, like, practiced more in, like, the late 1800s, early 1900s, obviously um, a, lot, a lot of places were still having a hard time and still are today treating black and brown bodies with like the respect that they deserve and then like even after death they're still being treated differently than white bodies which is right horrible to think about so back to the funeral parlor so eventually word got around that the coroner was making a decent amount of money and attracting big crowds with mccurdy's body this quickly grabbed the attention of carnival promoters who offered to buy him from Johnson. However, he refused to sell every time. But after five years on display, um, in 1916, two men came into the coroner's office who identified themselves as McCurdy's brothers. They said that they were there to claim his body and to finally lay him to rest with a proper burial. Sounds really nice, right? They lied. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say. The two men were actually Charles and James Patterson, who owned and operated the traveling Great Patterson Carnival. After hearing about the attention McCurdy's body was getting, the two decided to fake their identities in order to get a piece of the profit. Mm. Capitalism. Yeah. So McCurdy's body became a sideshow attraction in the Patterson Brothers Traveling Carnival. While on the carnival circuit, the attraction gained lots of attention from people who were curious about decomposition and about the American West. So although the displaying of Elmer McCurdy's body wasn't done specifically by anthropologists, can you think of any similar examples of the morally gray displaying of bodies that were actually done by early anthropologists? Yes, again, (laughs) Um, with, you know, stuff like we read in Bone Rooms, um, a lot of indigenous people, their bodies are displayed um, and still are displayed today. And like you said, with mummies and stuff like that. And then a lot of the bodies also end up just 
um, like, residing in these basements of museums, and they're not even being, like, I mean, not that, like, being used, them being used for education is an excuse to have them in the museums, but, like, some of them aren't even being used for that, and they're just mm-hmm. kind of collecting dust. Yeah, one thing, because I, I wrote down here, um, in Bone Rooms, they talked about, like, the World's Fairs, mm-hmm. um, and how they would have these things called like living exhibits where they would take indigenous peoples away from their homes Mm -hmm. and bring them to you know the fairs and display them alongside sometimes they're like dead relatives and dead ancestors oh boy and they would be labeled as like a culture from the past even though they're clearly alive and well right there Mm Um, That's still a problem um, today, I feel like, um, with indigenous people and Native American groups, is, like, you hear, um, like, you know, isn't it like a movie like The Last of the Mohicans or something like that? Or you hear, like, The Last of So-and-So. But, like, these people are still around today, and then we act like they've been, like, eradicated or wiped off the face of the planet, but they still absolutely exist, and and people just, like, choose not to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. I was going to say also... um, you know, drawing the parallel between um, the two guys from the carnival um, and what you were saying about the World's Fair is that that was, like, uh, very common, especially um, with uh, black women from Africa and just, like, how enamored others were with, like, the different body shape that they had, that they would literally bring them around and display them as part of some sort of, like, carnival or fair, like, exhibit and, like, travel with them when that's not obviously what they signed up to do mm-hmm. and have their own living body be on display and be looked at like that mm-hmm. just because they looked different than the Europeans. I think I also remember, correct me if I'm wrong, but when I remember doing that reading about the World's Fair in Bone Rooms and like the World's Fair was a big breeding ground for like eugenics groups. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's funny because like, you hear World's Fair usually and you think of like, oh, like the Eiffel Tower was made for the World's Fair. And, you know, like, fun stuff like that. And, like, yeah, it was, like, a cool place for cultures to meet and stuff like that. But there was a lot of bad stuff going on as well. And I remember them having, like, I think, um, like, different sized skulls of different races. And then and saying, like, some races' skulls mm-hmm. were bigger. So that means, like, they were smarter because their brain was bigger, which obviously is not true. And is obviously extremely racist and, and bad. Yeah, I mean, all of the exhibits were kind of designed in a way to make um, you know, white people seem mm-hmm. better and feel like that they're superior. Yeah. Well, then, and then that's like what um, we were talking about in Katrina's episode about museums and the Orientalism and trying to like make another culture mm-hmm. seem weird and different to make your culture seem better. Yeah, and I also noted how like strikingly similar um, like carnival proprietors and early anthropologists are in the sense that they would display their exhibits using like sensationalism mm-hmm. to grab people's attention and create these like less than truthful stories surrounding them you know mm-hmm. it's like clickbait yeah it was, <laughs> in the past it was 20th century clickbait so the what is their name patterson brothers capitalized on people's curiosity of the Wild West and created a, like sensationalized stories about it and McCurdy to grab their attention. Um, over the years, McCurdy had been given a slew of aliases, such as the Embalmed Bandit, the famous Oklahoma Outlaw, and the Thousand-Year-Old Man. Um, in 1922, the body changed hands when the brothers sold their business to a man named Louis Sonny. 
McCurdy then became an exhibit in Sonny's Traveling Museum of Crime in the 1940s. That's the tickets they found Mm. um, in his mouth. Um, During this time, the body was also lent out to other people and businesses for use. In 1933, McCurdy was displayed in movie theaters to promote the film Narcotic, a 57-minute long movie involving medical students' descent into drug addiction. Oh my goodness. And McCurdy... Um, now well into decomposition and mummification, was labeled as the result of a drug addiction. Oh. So then they were just changing the story to fit their, like, needs to sell yeah. tickets and stuff like that? So wait, I can ask a quick question for clarification. Sure. When the coroner first had him and embalmed him, he looked kind of like an embalmed body, like how you would go to, like, a wake today. Yes. And then by now, in, like, I think you said the 30s for this movie, now he was starting to decompose and mummify? Yes. Okay. So... Um, He was also lent to a traveling show near Mount Rushmore where he sustained significant damage from wind and it's estimated that this damage occurred from being transported on the top of a vehicle. That's just crazy. I know. Like a Christmas tree. Oh my, yeah. Not good. At this point, did people still know it was a real body? Yes. Okay. So after Sonny passed in 1949, McCurdy was placed into a warehouse for storage in Los Angeles. Um, he then popped up again as a prop in the 1967 film She Freak, a horror film set in a carnival. In 1968, McCurdy's body changed hands again when he was sold to the Hollywood Wax Museum by Sonny's son. However, due to the poor condition of his body, the museum did not put him on display. So as far as my understanding, this wax museum did know that he was a real person mm-hmm. um, and instead put him into storage instead of putting him on display, okay. but not out of respect, just because they didn't want to display something in bad condition. Yeah. From there, he was, I read that the Wax Museum, it shut down, but then they sold pieces in bulk. Mm-hmm. So he got mixed in there somehow. So this is where we kind of lose that, you know, this was a real person. That makes sense, because now you're buying something from the Wax Museum. So why would it not be made of wax? Right. Um, So, from here, McCurdy's body was bought, sold, and displayed so many times that his exact whereabouts became unknown. As more time passed, it was slowly forgotten that McCurdy was a real person and not just a prop. By the time the body had reached the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse in Long Beach, California, all recollection that the body was a real person was gone, at least until a production production designer accidentally caused his arm to fall off. So after almost 70 years of being bought, sold, displayed, and neglected, Elmer McCurdy's service to the entertainment industry was coming to an end. Upon identification by Dr. Joseph Choi, the Los Angeles County Medical Examiner, McCurdy was returned to Guthrie, Oklahoma, where he was laid to rest. He was buried in Summit View Cemetery next to the famous outlaw Bill Doolin, who at one point in time was displayed alongside McCurdy. The medical examiner ordered that the casket be placed under two feet of concrete to ensure that he would never be exhumed and put on display again. And his headstone reads, Elma McCurdy, shot by Sheriff's Posse in Osage Hills on October 7th, 1911, returned to Guthrie, Oklahoma from Los Angeles County, California for burial, April 22nd, 1977. So that's kind of all I have for you guys. That's it. Um, (laughs) That's it, you know. What are your, like, some overall thoughts about this story? It's kind of hard to believe that this would happen, but also not so hard to believe at the same time. Yeah. I knew the basics of the story, um, but I did not know, like, the in-between and then also just how incredible. Like, I knew his body was disrespected. didn't realize, like, just how much it was. Um, It's good that he's 
laid to rest now because I was thinking that throughout the story like oh like where did mm-hmm. the body actually um end up going I can't get over the fact that he was rolled around in roller skates and transported on the top of a car mm-hmm. and then also painted with glow-in-the-dark orange mm-hmm. paint and um I I just can't get over that I I it's an uncomfortable laugh, honestly. Yeah. Um, and I think any no, I don't think anyone would want that to happen to them. No, and I it's it is kind of shocking the lack of respect from everyone mm-hmm. going on here. Yeah, it was just one person after another. Yeah, like there was, was like, no one that was like, mm-hmm. "Hey, maybe this isn't acceptable." No one stepped in and was like, "Maybe this should stop." Because obviously, by the time it got to the car, not the carnival, um, like that like fun house or whatever where they found mm-hmm. it they didn't know it was a human but it went through so many people who did yeah. know it was and they just did whatever they wanted with it like could you imagine that happening today i, I guess it's no I <laughs> not mean, at all <laughs> i'm just thinking like shout out to the two feet of concrete that was yeah poured. <laughs> I, actually, <laughs> I thought that was like really like I don't know if thoughtful is the right no, word, I know but it is. Mean, though. Like, it was good that the coroner, or I, pr- yeah. I think that's who it was, like, mm-hmm. ordered that that happened. They were like, this poor person has been through enough. Yeah, like, it was, like, the last, like... It needs to stop. It's, like, a, a good... Like, one kindness. Thing. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And also that poor um, production designer. Oh, yeah. That's, like, the start to, like, a, a bad Criminal Minds episode. <laughs> Very traumatic. Yeah. Wow. Well, all right. Poor Elmer McCurdy. Yeah. He deserved better than that. As do most who are put yes. on display. Yes. <laughs> I, I hope y'all enjoyed this episode of The Anthrophiles. I'm Emily. I'm Sarah. I'm Katrina. And we'll see you in the fall, because this is our last episode of the season. Yeah. Woo-hoo. All of my information comes from the Oklahoma Territorial Museum website, the Magazine of Western History, the Forensic Anthropology Training Manual by Karen Rainey Burns, Ripley's.com, Snopes.com, CalebWild.com, True West Magazine, and SomethingInteresting.com. Our music is Find Your Way Beat by Nana Quabena from the YouTube Free Music Library. Our cover art is designed by Katrina using Canva. Thank you to Michael Bachman for editing and producing this episode, and thank you to the Quinnipiac Podcast Studio for making this podcast possible. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Anthrophiles, and we'll see you next season.